the call to be a Christian is a call to leave the things of this world, to die to yourself, and to follow Christ. In fact, later on, Jesus is going to compare it to picking up your cross and following Christ. That's the entry requirement for a Christian. This is something that every Christian does. They've gone through the narrow gate, to use the language of Pilgrim's Progress. They have turned their back on their, their old self that is stricken with sin, and they're now a new creation in Christ. This is the language Jesus uses in John 3, that they've become born again. That's what happens at conversion. You're a new creation. Now, this is true of every single Christian. In fact, if you look up earlier, this happens after John had been arrested in verse 12 and withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so the prophecy could be fulfilled. Basically, the prophecy is described in verse 15 that there would be a light to the Gentiles that shines so that in verse 16, the Gentiles would see the great light. And then verse 17, from that time forward, Jesus began saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, that is something universal to all Christians. Every Christian becomes a Christian by repenting of their sins, counting the cost, dying to themselves, picking up their cross, and following Christ. That's true of every single believer. And yet inside of Christianity, there is a different kind of call. And that is the call into to ministry. And that's what ordination is. If you're wondering what, what ordination is, what we're, we're celebrating here tonight, ordination is a different call where uh, it's not the call to be a Christian. Ordination is the call where somebody sets aside their secular vocation, no longer has a secular job, and instead will earn their living off of preaching the gospel. This is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says that he could ask for money from the Corinthians, after all, some of the others, like, like Peter does, but he's not going to because of his, the nature of the Corinthian church. Instead, he'll allow the Philippians and the Thessalonians to fund his ministry rather than the Corinthians. But the point he makes in 1 Corinthians 9 is that he could, he could ask for money from them. All those who preach the gospel have a right, he says in 1 Timothy 5, to make their living from the gospel. That it's the workman shouldn't muzzle the, the ox. He should be allowed to eat on the threshing floor. And when God said this, he wasn't concerned about the ox. He was looking forward to the days of pastoral ministry. And so there's a nature of what you see here in this calling to these four brothers that is true to all Christians, that they should leave their life and follow Christ. And when we looked at this passage in Mark's gospel in, in big church Sunday morning, that was the focus when I, when I taught it there, how every Christian becomes a fisher of men. Every Christian should be an evangelist, and that is true. But underneath that, understand, there is a privileged calling for these four men. They're no longer going to return, as you see there down in verse 22. They're no longer going to return to their secular vocation. Immediately they left the boat. And their father, by the way, and follow Jesus. He finds them in verse 18, casting their net into the sea. And just notice the phrase that Matthew puts here in his gospel. They were casting his net. Why? Well, because they were fishermen, silly. That's why. That's what fishermen do. 
It's almost not necessary for Matthew to say that. But the reason he draws attention to it is because he's making the point that they're doing their job. This is their world. This is their work. It is not sinful to be a fisherman. It is quite okay to be a Christian and a fisherman. It's a sanctified occupation. And yet, these four people will no longer do that. And keep that in your mind, by the way, when you get to the end of John's gospel and you found that they went back to fishing. And Jesus calls them and you know, their embarrassment, you know, Peter just jumps into the water. <laughs> I mean, everybody's freaking out in that scene because they were supposed to have left it. Not that there's anything morally wrong with fishing, but they'd committed their lives to the ministry. And at that point, they didn't think there was any ministry left to be done, and so they went back to their secular vocation. It's a tricky point, because before the Protestant Reformation, there were definitely two classes of Christians. In the, in the Catholic Church, there were two kinds of, of believers, those that were, uh, had gone through the sacrament of ordination and were set apart, and they had the privilege calling in their life, and the rest of the church, as much as the laity was even part of the church, their job was basically to support the priests. And in the Protestant Reformation, Luther tears down that divide, much like Jesus saw the veil of the the temple torn in two, Luther tore that divide down between the secular and the sacred. In a sense, he declared that all of life could be sacred, that any vocation is pleasing to God. Any vocation can have the the privilege of, of serving the Lord in it, that you're serving the Lord at work, whether you're a plumber or a pastor. You're both working for the Lord. You're providing for your family. You're providing something tangible and beneficial to society. And that's your calling. They even had a doctrine of vocation that was developed as a result of the Reformation, that, that anybody can have a calling, that God calls you to a task, particularly husbands are called to a work. And they will, will work. Eve was called to her husband, but Adam was called to the job. And so he, he works. And in Christ, every head of the family is called to work, to some kind of occupation, to provide for their family. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy that if there's a husband who won't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. I mean, this is a very entry-level doctrine of vocation here, that you're called to work. Nevertheless, there is a different calling that I believe the scripture teaches through the laying on of hands beginning in the Old Testament where Moses was instructed to lay hands on the the Levites and they laid hands on other Levites and the the high priest mantle was passed along in that fashion, carried on in the New Testament where Paul tells Timothy, that which you received from me through the laying on of my hands in presence of many witnesses, you in turn would be faithful to train up other men and lay hands on them and pass it on down. And this is the calling to the ministry. And that's what ordination means. I mentioned earlier that not all elders are ordained because most elders have secular jobs. They're still working for a living. But there's a a subset of, of those that are ordained. And what that means is they have counted the cost and they have counted their own skill, too, that they, they have been found to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 as not just, you know, their mom told them, hey, you're a good preacher, good luck with that, you should do it. But their churches gathered around them and said, you have the skills to do this. You have the calling of the Lord and the aptitude and the training, by the way. And the training. I want to be a pilot for Southwest Airlines. I see a buzz out here somewhere. Yeah, I can't just show up at Baltimore Airport tomorrow and say, hey, I, the Lord called me as a pilot. 
give me a shot at this. Come on. I can't do that. And ditto with pastoral ministry. You can't just say, hey, I feel called to be a pastor. Lord told me to do it. I'm in. No, there's some steps to go through, namely schooling, namely training, and then the demonstration of ability and aptitude. And that's what's happening here. Now, the seminary with Jesus is going to be three years long. (laughs) Ours takes four because the professors aren't Jesus. Jesus limited his to 12, which might not be a bad idea either. One of them turned out to be Judas, though, so you win some, you lose some. (laughs) You know, if the chief end of man is to glorify God, which it is, and the highest calling for any Christian, ordained or not ordained, is to magnify the glory of God in your life, through evangelism chiefly, And understand that, that a person is living their life apart from Christ and running away from him, refusing to glorify Christ. And then God gets a hold of their heart. They get saved. They now turn. That one person is now magnifying the glory of God in their life. They're rejoicing in Christ and trusting in Christ. That's one person, though, that's been changed. When you have been changed like that and you now tell somebody else, you're now running this way, you see somebody else running that way, and you tell them about the glory of Christ and they turn around also, now the glory of Christ is, in a sense, doubled. And as that new person tells somebody else about Christ, it's, this increases exponentially here, is what's happening. And so because the chief end of mankind is to glorify God, then evangelism becomes perhaps the highest calling of a Christian's life. And so that's why the analogy of a fisherman is good for every believer. Because there are people in this world that don't know that sins can be forgiven. They don't know that there is a hope after death. They don't know that death is not what should be feared but rather they should fear the one who can throw the soul into hell after death. Some people don't know that God made them with a purpose. Meanwhile, Christians know the joy of forgiveness, the riches of this life that come through conformity to Jesus. We know that God has a plan for us and that that plan is found only through belief in the gospel. We know that we were made for magnifying the glory of the Lord and that glory is magnified particularly through holiness and the life spent pursuing holiness which happens through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that happens when a person is converted to Christ. Thus, the driving focus in every Christian's life is to compel others to follow Christ. And that's how Jesus started his ministry. Think of what's happened already by this point in Matthew 4. You've had the drama of the baptism. The triumph of the temptation began, is where Matthew 4 began. The power of Jesus' own preaching, down in verse 17, He began his ministry with a shock and awe, with a bang. We're ready for events of national importance. That's why this this calling here of the first disciples stands out. It's not what you expect in the next verse. The dramatic scene where Jesus is baptized at the Jordan, 40 days of temptation, the Son of God and the devil toe-to-toe in the wilderness, followed by Jesus preaching for all the nations. He's the light to the Gentiles. I mean, what happens next should read more like a Billy Graham crusade. And instead, it's Jesus talking to, not even four at a time, two and two. (laughs) That's how Jesus started his ministry, though. The first act of his ministry is not something spectacular. It's the simple call for four people who are disciples of Christ to abandon secular vocation and follow him. Now, these four people already knew Jesus. We learned that from other gospels. They encountered him in Jerusalem before this point. So they knew who he was. 
It's not as if a stranger walked up to them on the ocean and said, on the Sea of Galilee, and said, hey, you know, walk away from your job. I got a better job for you. I mean, that's called a pyramid scheme. <laughs> that's not what this is. They recognized Jesus. They likely saw him cleanse the temple the first time, described in John chapter 2. And yet, here he is now, by himself, it appears, and he calls them. He has a new job for them. He has a new job. And it begins with this imperative, follow me, he says in verse 19. The contrast, again, by Matthew, I think is intentional. They were fishermen. By verse 22, they will not be fishermen anymore. They'll be a different kind of fisherman. Now they will be fishers of actual men, and their occupation will not be made even in Galilee. These guys are going to go to the corners of the world. So why should Christians leave their nets? Why is it worth it? Not for every Christian, of course. Again, this is not the universal call for every Christian. And this is a, it's a hard balance to strike here. I mean, I want to talk about this in such a way that compels some of you, especially some of you, you younger people, to say, you know what, I want to go into ministry when I grow up. I want to see if I have the skills. I want to see if I have the abilities. I want to be, uh, spend my life working for the Lord. I want that. So I want to convey that without implying that every other Christian that doesn't do that is somehow second class. Because if every Christian walked away from their jobs, then there would be no way to pay the salaries of those who walked away from... Does this make sense? It's like if everybody packed up to be a missionary, the only stability in the Christian world would be the stewardesses on the airplanes, or the pilots, I suppose. They're the ones going back and forth. Everybody else is just zigzagging around the world. That's not the design. But if you're toying with the idea of serving the Lord for your vocation, let me give you a couple reasons I think are drawn from this in Matthew 4 why you should do that, why you should leave your nets. First, because of Jesus' clarity, because of the clarity of this call. Follow me. I mean, she's just right out. Matthew and Mark don't give you the introductory comments. Jesus just walks up to them, it seems. Maybe there was some small talk that's not recorded here, but the gist of it is he walks up to them and says, hey, follow me. And I added the word hey just to drag it out a little bit. This is one of the most famous acts of obedience in history. There's no pause recorded here. Notice that Matthew in verse 20 says, immediately they left their nets. There's no pause. There's not a second look. This is a radical message, a radical call, and radical obedience. Sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button here. The center of this is the radical call to discipleship. Setting down their nets doesn't make them evangelists, but following Christ does. You understand that, right? Just setting down their nets does not somehow bring them into the work of Christ. Setting down their nets and now following Jesus does. And that's the element of this that is universal to every Christian. Every Christian is part of this following of Christ. To spend their life at the feet of Christ. The call to be radically abandoned to the Lord. That's the first command. Repent and believe that he just preached back up in verse 17. Mark conveys this in his gospel as he goes through Mark is the call of discipleship. Matthew is going to declare this through the process of different sermons that Jesus preaches, how, how you will build your house and the rise, wise foundation or the foolish foundation. The wisdom is presented in Matthew as a call to a summons, the attachment to a person, the acceptance of his authority, the imitation of his example. All of that is part of discipleship. You respond to the call of Christ, you attach yourself to the person of Jesus, you accept his authority, and you imitate his example. 
It's interesting here that the arrival of the king of the universe is not met with fanfare. He's not ushering in his reign in front of all these world leaders. The Roman king is not present here. There's no pomp or pageantry. Instead, the ministry of Jesus is marked with this gradual gathering of unknown fishermen. It's like the tiny snowball that's going to keep growing here in the insignificant corner of Galilee. I mean, this is an obscure place for this conversation. As I mentioned, these four men knew Jesus. They'd figured out that he was the Messiah. It's described in John 1 and then John 2. They had spent the night with him in Jerusalem. They'd heard his teaching. When they returned to Galilee, they were convinced that he was the Messiah. So they were already, in that sense, disciples of him. Now they're casting nets in the sea. These nets, by the way, would be 20 feet across. They're large nets. It would take at least two people to cast them. That's why they're working in pairs here. The fishermen would drag them over their shoulder to the shore. They'd cast them in a circular motion. Sometimes they'd even take two boats out, and they'd go out in the two boats with the net hanging between the two boats. They'd lift them up, and they would drop it like that. And if, the best way to do it would be to throw it up so it would land like a parachute on the water. They had rocks tied on all the sides of it so it would sink in the water. They would trap the fish as they sank, and they'd have a string to it, and they'd hoist it back up. Or, on hot days, a fisherman would dive into the water and swim down and pull it back up. That's what these guys were doing, preparing their fish to be traded, cleaning their nets. This is their normal routine. And Jesus just walks into them, walks into their life, and says, abandon everything. Don't do this any longer. And he tells them, you need to follow me. This is not going to be a partnership with Jesus here. Although Peter will pretend like it is sometimes. <laughs> it's not going to be one part Peter, one part Jesus. This is them following Jesus. This is not a sort of everyone is equal kind of thing. It's a call to follow Jesus. He's in charge, you're not. Henceforth, they will no longer serve their own interests. They will no longer serve their own desires. They will no longer work their own vocation. Henceforth, they will spend their life in pursuit of Jesus' interests. That's a powerful description of devotion to Christ. It was about Jesus, not about the temple, which was the focal point of their worship in the Old Testament. It was about Jesus as a person, as the Messiah, as the individual. And Jesus here embodies the divine initiative, by the way. He is the one who calls. Do you see this? This is not something that happens in the Jewish world. This is not something that happens even in the church world. It would be a little bit weird. In the church, if you were sitting there and somebody came up to you and said, hey, I'm going to disciple you, follow me. You might look at him and say, do I know you? But that's what Jesus does here. He's demonstrating the authority of God. He's saying, you will follow me. This was a new kind of discipleship. Even the Jewish sects and the Jewish divisions would say, hey, follow our teaching. But nobody was as arrogant to say, you need to follow me as a person. But that's exactly what Jesus declares. You will follow me. This discipleship is based on the identity and the authority of Jesus as something different and superior to anything the world has ever known. So why should some Christians set down their nets to go in the employment of the Lord? Because of the clarity of this call. Follow me. Secondly, because of the deity of Jesus. Not just because of his clarity, but because of his deity. And that's what's brought out here next. Note the enormity of this command. It's not okay to tell somebody else to do this. We just talked about that. The Pharisees didn't do that. John the Baptist didn't do that in the Jordan. I mean, he had hundreds of thousands of people. As secular historians describe John the Baptist as perhaps the most famous person in the Roman Empire until that point. John the Baptist had more fame and had spoken to more people than, the, than Caesar had. 
But John the Baptist never told anybody, come be my disciple, stop what you're doing and live out here with me. He had disciples who spread the news of his teaching. We find that out in John's gospel. But John didn't say, walk away from your life and come baptize with me in the river. But Jesus does here. John called him to repentance. Jesus called him to repent and follow him. In the Old Testament, people were called to walk in the way of God. That's what repentance was. You repent from your sins. You follow the path. Direct is the, the Hebrew word. It's the common word repeated through Psalm 119. You follow the path that God lays out. Jesus here says, follow me personally. He's the one that is the path. That's what he means in John 14 when he describes himself as the way. He is the path. I mean, this is a declaration of deity. The fact that they joined Jesus, it doesn't say so much about them as it does about Jesus. I mean, these are men are fickle, proud, divisive, and hard-hearted. You know how I know they're fickle, divisive, proud, and hard-hearted? Because Jesus calls them all of those things. Three years from now, he will have used every one of those adjectives. At the end of his ministry, he calls them hard-hearted. You guys are so hard-hearted. How can it be, he asks them. The fact that they had dropped their nets and followed him speaks of Jesus' greatness and power. Notice how they could have responded. There's other examples of people responding to Jesus. They could have said, who is he to ask us to follow him? Isn't he Mary's son? Isn't the carpenter his dad? Why would we follow him? Wait, follow him? He's the guy from Nazareth, right? No way, we're out. That's the way other people responded. Aren't James and Joseph and Simon and Judas' brothers? Why would he follow that guy's family? Or in John 6, 42. Don't we know his mother and father? Instead, these ones followed Jesus immediately. They didn't ask to go home and bury their dad. They didn't ask to, to go home and divide their property. They just did it. When Jesus calls, instant obedience is the only option. Any other Response is disobedience. And by the way, understand that Jesus' call to be disciples of him, this is blasphemous if he is not God. He's telling them to leave their father's business. You're not allowed to do that. This is practically a capital offense in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, your family business operated on you having children, particularly sons, to raise up and take over the family business. If you had daughters, you would, they would marry, hopefully, to somebody else with, a, with an honest occupation. The families would be united. That's the way the, the Israelite social structure functioned right there. Jesus is ripping the fabric of society with this call. This would be a violation of the fifth commandment. Leave your father's business to follow a fancy-smanchy religious teacher that rolled into town? They could take you to the city gate and stone you to death for this. Unless Jesus is God. In the Roman world and in the Jewish world, to ask somebody to leave their family is unheard of with one exception. Military service. And military service had to be defined period of time. What Jesus asks here has no terminus on it. He's demonstrating that he is superior to everything in the world, elevating himself even above the fifth commandment. When Jesus speaks, James and John leave their father holding the nets because they've been summoned by the Lord. This seems unreasonable unless Jesus is the Lord himself. And we know that Jesus asks less of his followers than he gives to them. He lays down his life for these four, making atonement for their sins. The third reason 
to leave your nets, not just because of Jesus' clarity and his deity, but also because of his centrality, and the centrality of this message. I said earlier that these four are no longer going to live for themselves, but would now live for the interest and service of Jesus. But what does Jesus have for them to do? They're going to now be fishers of men, is the phrase in verse 19. They're now going to be casting their nets, not for, for fish, but for people. Now, this is an Old Testament metaphor, but Jesus is capturing this Old Testament metaphor. He's hooking it. Come on, hooking it. In the Old Testament, being a fisher of men was a judgment. It was leading people to judgment, which you could imagine, right? If you're a fish, getting fished is not good. Best case scenario, you just get a hook in your mouth. Worst case scenario, you're somebody's dinner. This is described in Jeremiah 16. Behold, God says, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I'll send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from all the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Look what God is saying here. I'm going to raise up fishermen for you, all right? You obstinate Israelites, you go and hide all over the place. You want to go hide in Egypt. You want to go hide in Babylon. You will not be able to outrun this judgment. Jeremiah is telling them, you need to repent. Pack up, repent, and start walking to Babylon. And they say, I'm not walking anywhere. I'm going to hide right here. God can't find me. God can't see me. And God tells them, you know what? I will find a hunter that can hunt you down. I will find a fisherman that will hook you. And you will be drugged to judgment. That's what's going to happen to you. But in the Old Testament, the prophets were then sent out not to call people around the world to come to the Savior, but to call the Israelites to keep the Torah. The Old Testament prophets did not come primarily to the world. They didn't go door-to-door in Moab, of course, Jonah being an exception. In fact, when a famine hit Egypt, they didn't send food packs to Egypt. (laughs) The prophets went to Israel, and they commanded Israel to return to the commandments. This is so different than what Jesus is calling here. These fishermen are not going to go to Israel to tell them to keep the law. These fishermen are going to scatter to the world, telling Gentiles to come to the light that was described up in verse 16. They will do in Galilee what John the Baptist did in Jordan. They will summon the nations to repentance and direct them to the Savior. And they have no idea what they're going about, about to embark. They don't know what's going to happen next. These four guys from Galilee, they've probably never been further west than the edge of the Sea of Galilee. The edge of their boat is probably the furthest west these guys have ever been. Sorry, east that they've ever been. The edge of their boat. And here, Jesus is going to send them. They're going to go on a a nine-month tour of other nations with Jesus coming up. After the crucifixion, they're going to scatter to different parts of the world. To Africa, to, to Europe, to Asia, all the way to India. And these people are going to go everywhere. You've heard it said, join the Navy, see the world. Join the Marines, see the Navy. When you sign up for this, you have no idea what you're in store for. That's the point here. These men don't know where Jesus is going to take them. They don't know. They don't know. These four men, their teacher says, leave your life and follow me. These men were so provincial and now, I mean, they had probably never spoken publicly before. Do you understand that? These are fishermen in Galilee. They've never had a crowd around them. 
This is the scene in the book of Acts when they start giving sermons in Jerusalem and the, the, and the, the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the Jews say, what is going on? Aren't those the fishermen? And they discern, though, they'd been with Jesus. Well, that makes sense then. These were not influential other than maybe John. I think John had some influence in his, in his fishing ministry. But Jesus is going to launch them into the world. They will follow him around Israel to Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Tyre, Sidon. They'll be sent around the Mediterranean, Africa, Asia, Europe. After the resurrection, they're going to be sent into the world. I mean, this is unprecedented in world history. Nothing like this had ever happened before. God is going to take the gospel from Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the world, and it will be carried by these former fishermen. Their new task is fishing, taking good news. The closest example of this in the Old Testament, by the way, would be Jonah, but Jonah did not have good news, did he? Jonah was not God has a wonderful plan for your life. Jonah was like 40 days and you're going down and sits on the hill and is upset that God saved them. God's not going to use angels. God's not going to use rocks. Although both are available to him. Jesus says that. He's going to use people. Proverbs 11 verse 30 says that he who wins souls is wise. These men are, these men are called to save the world by their heroic, not by the heroic performance, but by their subordination to Jesus. Do you get that? These men are going to rescue people not by how valiant and how brave they are, but by how submissive they are to their Savior. It's precisely because Jesus came to them that this fishing becomes necessary. Their ultimate function will be to confront people with God's presence in the person of Christ. It's a call to follow Him, to believe in Him, and to repent. And as I mentioned, these four are fishermen. It's a humble, humble vocation. Success, to be a successful fisherman, you had to have skill. You had to be alert. You had to be patient. I don't know how Peter made it. You had to have persistence. That's exactly what Jesus is going to use in evangelism. These men would have a telltale accent. You could tell the accent of somebody from Galilee. They were uneducated. They spoke Greek and Hebrew, both of which are going to be useful to them through the trading of fish, but they've been so limited by their life. In time, these fishermen will go where Jesus had not yet gone and proclaim the message that Jesus had taught them. And they're going to have an expanded life from the deck of their boat to the corners of the world. Do you know how these four stories end? Peter will become the rock that the church is built on, the leader of the twelve. In every list of apostles, Peter is first. Andrew is seen four more times between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Four more times you see him. All four times he's inviting somebody else to come see Jesus. James is going to be the first of the twelve to be martyred. That's described in Acts chapter 12. The first of the apostles to be put to death for the Gospel. And John, of course, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special place in Jesus' heart. Simon and Andrew here illustrate a prompt response. James and John illustrate a complete response by walking away from their, even their father. Immediately, verse 22, they left the boat, they left their father, and they followed him. This is what ordination is about. Declaring that you are no longer in charge of your life. I don't know exactly how the military works, but I have a a hunch that if you're in the military and they decide they're going to send you to some base somewhere in some other country, you don't get veto power over that. Maybe you could quit, I guess. I don't know how it works, but you're kind of not in charge of where you get sent. And this is 
the case of pastoral ministry. This is the case of those who are ordained to ministry. That's what you're signing up for. You're forfeiting that desire in your life to say, I'm going to live here and I'm going to work here. You can't be ordained to the pastoral ministry if you say, yeah, I want to be a pastor, I want to live on the Lord, but I really want to live in the northern Virginia area. Preferably three-hour drive from family, that would be awesome. You don't get to say that. And that's not the world that we're talking about here. The world of, of ordination is for the person that says, I'm giving my life to the Lord, and I'm going to go where He sends me. I'm going to live according to His will. This is what it means when you sign up. <laughs> Again, this is not a call that is given to every single Christian, of course. I want to make that clear. Although there are elements of it that carry over, where every Christian says, I'm going to die to this world and live for Christ, of course. And if the Lord calls you somewhere, you, you heed that. This is a person who looks forward at their life and says, Lord, I'm not going to work for myself. I'm not going to go where I want to go. I'm going to yield my life and my direction to you. You use me. And the Lord does. We're all chess pieces. Now what happens if somebody decides they're going to do that, but they don't have the skill for ministry? They don't have the education, they don't have the skill. Well, that person becomes essentially a burden on the church. They become one step above homeless, really. <laughs> because they can't find a church that will, will call them. And so that's the critical element of ordination. That the church's job then is to wade into this and to give this mantle to those that we say have that ability. They have the desire and they have the ability. And this is how the Lord has always advanced his work. And there are many people here tonight, I know, who are mulling this around in their minds, who are trying to decide, is it worth it to go into a life of ministry? Is it, is it worth it? You don't control your salary. You don't control the neighborhoods you, you, you live in. You don't control those kind of things. You don't get to control what kind of school system your kids will grow up in. That's outside of your control. Is it worth it? And I say the answer is yes. The answer is yes, it is worth it. Because it's an adventure. It's an adventure to work for the Lord. It's an adventure to be on His payroll, to trust Him for your pay every month, to trust Him for every season of life, to know that this is all dependent upon Him. I say it is worth it. I say it's worth it because of Jesus' clarity, His deity, and His centrality. That He captures this world. And He uses weak vessels like us to take the gospel to the nations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for Simon and Andrew who responded immediately, Matthew says. We're thankful for James and John who responded completely, walking away from their family business. I pray for those in this congregation that are wrestling to their own response. I pray that they would exalt the life of ministry in their hearts. They would esteem it. Lord, this is a faithful church. This is a generous, generous church body that has been eager to support the work of the ministry through our missionaries and their generous giving there, through the pastors and the staff here, how they generously pay us here. This is a, an easy vineyard, it seems. <laughs> so I'm thankful for the blessing of, of serving here. Lord, I pray for others that are thinking about ministry. I pray that you would do work in their hearts. 
whether they want to be a pastor or a missionary, whether they want to live in, in this country or move to another nation, that, that you would be at work in their hearts and you would direct your people where in the world they need to go. We know there are nations in the world that have no significant gospel presence. There are people in the world that have no Bible in their language. There are cultures in this world that know not the gospel. And our culture has such an abundance of those things. I pray that you would raise men and women up from our congregation to go to those difficult places. At the end of the day, Lord, we all work for you. We are like Esther and Mordecai, scratching our heads, knowing that your work is going to get done. We just want to partner with you in whatever way we can. So Lord, we're thankful for the privilege it is to minister. Lord, we're grateful for the people in this congregation that have secular jobs and vocations for their generosity in giving, but more than that, for the way they magnify and glorify the gospel in the world. Lord, I confess sometimes to feeling so limited in my ability to impact the world, thinking even tonight as we were praying for evangelism opportunities, you have always been faithful to bring people to church that don't know the gospel, but there is a truth, there is a bit of of jealousy or envy in, in my heart towards those that work in the world, that have lives surrounded by those that don't know the gospel. I'm grateful that you've raised them up, that you've given them a truth, and you've given them the courage and the boldness to speak the gospel where they're at in the world. I only ask that you'd use me in some small way to equip them and encourage them in their own evangelism. We know that we all have a role to play, Lord, that you're the one who fishes, you're the one who saves, we're just the ones that descend upon the lake. So Lord, whatever lakes we're fishing in this week, we pray that you would use us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.